Hey, if you're a guest with us, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope. And uh, honestly, it's just it's an honor to get to do what I do. I love opening God's Word. Uh, we like to walk through books of the Bible as much as we can around here. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, we've been in this series for the last few weeks, uh, just walking through uh, both of these letters where Paul is addressing his young protege, instructing him on what life uh, in the church looks like. So... Uh, before we get there, though, just a couple housekeeping items. One, if you, everybody here would do me the favor, there is a Connect card on the seat back in front of you or underneath your seats, uh, if you're in the front row here. Uh, if you'd fill that out for us, and let me tell you why. Um, we believe, and we've said this so many times here, but we want to keep saying it, that church is more than a seat on a Sunday. Our elders take seriously the call to shepherd and love the people in this place, and so one of the ways we do that is staying connected to you. And so when you fill that card out, at the end of the service, you can drop it in the offering tray when it's passed. And we would love to be able to pray for you and your family. So you can put a prayer request on the back. Um, it's, it's, it can be confidential if you put that. And, and we would love, we meet every Saturday to pray over the church. And we would love to pray for your, uh, you and your family. Uh, in addition to that, uh, if you're a veteran, um, if you would mark on that card on the notes section that you're a veteran of the armed services, we would just appreciate that. We've got something planned for you. And if you would uh, do that, it would help us a lot. Last housekeeping item. Next weekend is our missions weekend. Uh, when New Hope started, uh, from day one, they had always supported a mission. And what I mean by that is we call them strategic partners. So our vision as a church is to be disciples making disciples. And we know that here in this, when we gather together, we remind one another to go and live on purpose, on mission for Jesus throughout the week. But we want to partner with people who can do that in places we can't quite reach. And so we honor that once a year, and uh, next Sunday we're going to be bringing in a guest preacher, his name's Dan Clymer, and he gave his life to a ministry that was planting churches in the northeast part of this country, and he's going to come and share from God's Word. And in addition to that, uh, we're going to be, uh, our elders are going to be commissioning, praying over uh, two of our very own, two members of our church, who the very next week are going to be leaving to go be missionaries in Turkey, okay? Now, something about that, we can't post that part online. And so if you want to be here next week to see this and pray over this young couple, they're actually seated right here. Put your hands up again. Got you again. Sorry. Um, but we can't post it online because of the sensitivity of where they're headed. Uh, but we would love for you to be a part of praying with us as a church as we send them out uh, next weekend as well. So mark your calendars. Next Sunday, uh, Missions Weekend, we'd love for you to be here. Hey, let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you. That as we gather as a church, we come into the presence of the creator of the universe. God, you've given us your word. What a gift. And as we gather and we study your word together, Father, I pray that you would impart on our minds and our hearts what you'd have us to take with us as we scatter from this place to live on purpose for Jesus during the week. Father, we believe with all our hearts that we can encounter you in this moment. And so we come before you asking you to speak to us through your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get started, one of the concerns I have in preaching is that a lot of the times, if you're like me, you're kind of task-oriented, meaning when you hear what you're supposed to go and do, you like to go and do it, right? You like to say, okay, I know that these two or three things are what I need to do in my life, or I need to get this out of my life, or add this into my life, and that's not bad. But it can get really difficult when you start thinking about the, the nature of what we're talking about. So as we get to this passage, it's going to be tempting to walk out of here and say, I've got to go do this, this, and this, and that's what it means to live out this passage. I'm going to go do that. 
And I think that would be what I would call judging too quickly what we're trying to say. Now, I'm wired that way. I start to hear something. I kind of get to the end of what someone's saying a little bit before they get there occasionally. I'm usually wrong, but I think I'm getting there, right? And then I judge too quickly what the outcome is, and I start thinking about how I'm going to live it out throughout the week, and that would be the danger, right? If, if you're like me, I want to caution you not to judge too quickly, because when we judge too quickly, things don't always turn out the way we want them to turn out. We don't always respond the way we would had we taken the time to really understand what we're trying to say. I saw a commercial this week that illustrates this principle perfectly. Check this out. Hello. Well, how much are they asking? Well, that's a lot of money for a deck. Well, I hate to tell you this, but you're getting robbed. Did you hear me? You're getting robbed. Ow! Stop! <laughs> so you, you see a commercial like that, and you're like, I've got to fit that into a sermon at some point, right? Uh, but the, the principle is true. We judge too quickly at times. My fear is that we do that when we come to church and we hear a sermon. We just say, hey, this is what i got to go do. I'm going to go do it. And what happens is we either get burned out or we lose connection with the heart of the king. Mike Breen says it this way. I love the way he says this. He says, we, we Christians are addicted to and obsessed with the work of the kingdom with little to no idea how to be with the king. I mean, that's a convicting statement. I mean, we can get so caught up in what we do for God that we're never really connected to God. We can get so caught up in accomplishing things for the kingdom that we have lost touch with the heart of the king and what it means to be in an intimate relationship with him. So in this passage we're going to study, this is what Paul's trying to get at. He's trying to tell them, He's trying to tell Timothy so that Timothy can lead this church to understand like God is more concerned with transforming your heart than modifying your behavior. You see, we've said that before a lot of times. The gospel is about heart transformation, not behavior modification. And what I've found in my life, you may have found in your life to be true, when I allow God to transform my heart, the behavior follows suit. It kind of, like I start to live out this life that he is transforming inside of me. But when all I do is make my faith about changing my behavior, I lose out on the transforming heart. And for a lot of us, we've kind of lived that Christian life, this, this idea that I can just change my behavior and everything's going to be good. When God's after your heart. So, uh, in the first part of chapter 2, which David laid out for us last week, which, can I just be transparent with you? Um, I love the season that I'm in right now. Like, there, it comes with some difficulty. I get that. But I've been in the lead minister role here at New Hope for a little over a year now. I love preaching. I really do. I love this. And I also really love when I'm not preaching, and my father-in-law is. <laughs> Uh, and so I get to listen to my hero on the weeks that I'm not doing what I feel called to do. It's kind of a pretty sweet spot, selfishly, to be in. Uh, and last week, I wasn't here, but I watched his sermon online, and it was incredible. I was like, uh, don't go on vacation. You can just keep going. Uh, but the first part of the chapter, Paul addresses this, like, enduring difficult circumstances. And he uses this analogy of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And then he shifts his attention here in the second part of the chapter that we're going to study today in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And he uses the analogies of a workman, an instrument, and a servant. And he begins to illustrate what a changed kingdom life looks like when you allow God to transform your heart first. And so he starts, he gives us some context in chapter 2, verse 14. Here's what he says. Timothy, remind them of these things. 
and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And so he starts out, he says this, two things, Timothy, I want you to remind them. If you're familiar with your Bible, if you go all the way back to your Old Testament, all the way through your Bible, one of the dominant themes in Scripture is this idea of remembering. God is constantly telling his people to remember because they're forgetful people, just like we are. We have something in mind and everything's going good and it kind of fades from our mind, we get distracted. And so part of following Jesus is mastering the art of remembering. And so when Paul tells Timothy, hey, tell them to remember some things, he is saying, remember that God has always followed through. Remember who God is, but remember what he's done. Remember what he's doing right now. Pay attention. And remember the hope he's given us for what he will accomplish going into the future. So remember. Then he says, but in addition to reminding them, I want you to charge them. And this word charge uh, really has a lot to do with this idea of a covenant-type language. Charging them is not telling them what to do. It's challenging them to enter into a relational transaction. So you're entering into more of a relationship agreement with God. It's covenant language. I like the way that G.K. Chesterton said it. He said this, the man who makes a covenant makes an appointment with himself at some distant time or place. So when you're charged with something from Scripture, it's really about saying, hey, begin with the end in mind. I want you to think about the end of your life. And what I'm charging you with now has a big impact on the end, on the, the finish line of your faith. And you need to live this way with the end in mind. So remember where God has brought you, but remember where he wants to take you. And I charge you to live that kind of life. And then he says one of the first characteristics of a person who is constantly remembering and and entered this covenant relationship with God moving forward is they don't fight and they don't bicker with words. Now, again, if you're like me, a lot of my experience in church has been that Christians are experts at arguing with one another. We're really good at it. We use our words against one another very, very well. And we create tension and frustration. We argue over theology and and doctrine. We argue over denominational background. We argue over vision and where someone's headed. We argue over our preferences. And we use our words to quarrel and create tension. And Paul is saying, hey, I'm charging you not to do that. Because at the end of your life, you're going to regret that you didn't keep your tongue tamed. At the end of your life, you're going to look back and you're going to wish that you'd use your words to build up instead of constantly tearing down. I was reading this week from Walter, I don't know if I'll say his last name correctly, Liefeld, and he tells of a Christian apologist who debated the famous atheist Malin Murray O'Hare, and uh, very much an antagonist against the faith, and so he's an apologist, meaning he would enter into these debates to defend Christianity. And he enters into a debate against an atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare, and they doesn't go so well. And one of the people that observed this said this, After one such appearance, some were troubled by this man's combative, demeaning attitude to the antagonist. His response to that was this. I did not go there to save souls, but to destroy a heretic. And I think when I read through the writings of the Apostle Paul, he would have reworded that. He would have said something more along the lines of, I went to destroy a heresy and save a soul. You see, what we do, how we do something is just as important as what we're doing. Because it's the mark of whether or not your heart's been transformed or you're simply modifying your behavior. And so the Apostle Paul charges constantly in his writings. I mean, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, this church in a city called Corinth, he had to correct a lot of what they were doing. 
And you get to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and he writes this famous chapter, the love chapter. Many of us had that read in our weddings, and I don't mean to burst your romantic bubble, but that passage of Scripture has very little to do with romantic love. It was read at my wedding too, so don't, don't feel too bad, okay? But in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul begins to describe the Christian transformed life in terms of love, and he says this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What he means is, if I know everything to say, and I can say it in the perfect way, if I'm the ultimate debater, the defender of truth, but I don't love the people I'm presenting the truth to, I'm simply making noise, and it doesn't benefit the kingdom. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I don't love, I'm nothing. So if my faith and my knowledge of the faith are just impeccable, if I've got it all figured out and I know that I, what I believe and who I believe and that my faith is so strong, it could literally move mountains. That's how strong my faith was, but I don't love the people that God has placed all around me, that I'm nothing, I'm bankrupt. Last, he says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I don't gain anything. Meaning, what I do for God, if not done from a position of transformation and love toward who he sent me to, then what I'm doing doesn't make a difference. See, Paul was concerned about the transformation of the heart, not just the modification of the behavior. And he says, I'm charging you. I'm charging you to see this from the right perspective. And if we're not careful, what we're going to talk about next becomes a list of objectives that we need to accomplish instead of a description of what takes place when we allow the Father to speak into our heart. We have to be careful about that. Now, he lays out three areas. He says, the first thing, you're going to be like a workman. And what he describes about the workman is you are, uh, the transformed life is a life of integrity. All right? So you do things with integrity. You do it well. You pursue excellence. You, you have to live this certain life. The next thing he'll say is like an instrument. And he's going to say, the instrument is like purity. or You're, you're pursuing the right things with your life, is what he means by that. And the last is that of a servant. And he says, you're to be humble, confident, and gentle. Now, the first part, he lays out in verse 15. Here's what he says. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so one of the rules, if you're studying the scriptures, uh, so if you go and you're doing a Bible study and you're reading through a chapter of the Bible or you're reading through an entire book of the Bible, there's this principle that I think will benefit you. It's really good. It says this, if it's repeated, it's important. If the biblical author repeats something in what you're reading, it's important for you to take note of that. Paul says here, you need to present yourself as a workman, so what you do, in such a way that you're not ashamed. But this is not the first time Paul has talked about the Christian living an unashamed life. If you flip back over to chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and I'm not ashamed for this reason. I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. Because I know whom I have believed. Notice that Paul doesn't say, I'm not ashamed because I know what I've accomplished. I'm not ashamed because I know how much I know. I'm not ashamed because I'm the smartest man in the room. I'm not ashamed because my faith is stronger than everyone around me. He says, 
my ability to live an unashamed life is based purely on the fact that I know the one. I know him. I'm deeply connected to Jesus. I'm deeply connected to the king, so I'm not ashamed of any of the kingdom work he's called me to. I'm not ashamed of the truth that I stand firm on. I'm not ashamed that I have to submit my life and behave and live in such a way that's not always popular in the culture and the world that I find myself in. I'm not ashamed to do that, not because of those actions are earning me something, but they are in response to what's already been done for me on the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. I'm deeply connected to the Father, And that leads to the transformation of living unashamed. This is what Paul lays out. He says, now, when you live an unashamed life, you're able to see and understand when things aren't right. You get a new perspective. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul would write to the church at Corinth that you get a new set of eyes. You see things as though you didn't see them that way before when you become a new creation. And so Paul continues. He says, hey, there's some false teaching going on. But I want you to see this from the right perspective. He says the way you use your words in addressing things that aren't right and addressing things that are wrong is really, really important. And then he calls it out. He says, here's the false teaching that's going on. He says, you've got these two two people in particular. You've got Hymenaeus and Philetus. And this is really fascinating. Their their names are Greek in nature. And that's really important here in a moment. But I want you to think about this. What you do matters. Because these false teachers, Paul put their names in a document (laughs) that will live forever. Can you imagine being remembered forever for that reason? You see, when my wife and I, we've got four children, and each time she was pregnant, we began to discuss what we were going to name this child. I can tell you two names that would have never made the list. (laughs) Hymenaeus and Philetus. Why? Because they're remembered for the wrong reasons. What you do matters. And so they address this, all right? And so he says, hey, they're Greek. Now, what the Greeks believed in Ephesus in that day was this. They were dualists, and here's what I mean by that. A dualist is someone who believed in two things. The physical was corrupt and bad, meaning your physical body, everything material, all of it is horrible and bad and must be rejected. But the spiritual is good. And the spiritual must be accepted and pursued. Physical bad, spiritual good. That's what they believed. In fact, they had a saying, it went soma sema, and it meant the body is the tomb. And so they rejected anything about the body. So the last thing that they would want to believe is that when Jesus returns, we would be resurrected with new bodies. They don't want to believe that. Okay? The problem with that is that's exactly what Paul teaches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he teaches that when Jesus returns, there'll be another resurrection. They said, no, the resurrection's already happened. It happened when you became a Christian. It happened, you get spiritual resurrection when you were baptized. And Paul would say, yeah, that's true. And he writes that in Romans 6. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. You get spiritual resurrection at that point. But there's another resurrection coming when Jesus returns. They didn't want to believe that. Now, as you explore it, you come to understand, like, that's a pretty great concept, right? I've thought through, like, okay, yeah, like, we're going to have, like, at the end of our life, if we live at the end, like, we have a resurrection. So anything we experience in this life, we're getting new bodies. Think about that. If you haven't thought about it, I have. And I've picked out my body, all right? <laughs> Bear with me. It's not a lot different than my current body. Let me show you a picture of it. Okay? Just slightly different. The tattoos are the only difference, right? Think about it. The end of your life, Paul says, you get a new body. That's the hope that we were hoping when Jesus returns, this is going to be incredible. And they're saying, no, that's already happened. Paul's saying, no, you have to address this, Timothy. But you've got to do it in such a way that you don't create more pain. And I don't know about you, but for years, anytime I've had to see conflict within the church, it's created more pain. 
than healing. We're not the greatest at having difficult conversations. And yet Paul says here that your words can't lead to quarreling or difficulty. Because if you don't address this the right way, here's what's going to happen. And he, he tells us in verses 14, 16, 17, 18, he says, look, if you don't address this false teaching the right way, it's going to ruin the lives of those who are listening to it. That's verse 14. Verse 16, he says, those who indulge in it, they're going to become more and more ungodly. Verse 17, he says, it's going to spread like a disease to everyone who hears it. Verse 18, it says, it's actually going to destroy the faith of some of the people who listen to this kind of teaching. So you have to put an end to it. But how you put an end to it matters. How you approach these people matter. And so he kind of leads us into the last section, and he says, or the, the next section, and he says, if you want to be somebody who's leading with truth, you also, and integrity, you have to picture yourself as a vessel being used by God. You're not doing this in your own power. And here's what he says about that, verse 20. He says, you're going to have to correct the false teaching, but let me tell you about how your life is supposed to be before you do that. And he says this, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy and useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Here's what Paul's talking about. He says, when you go in a house, you've got some things that are good and very useful, and they're kind of protected in the home, and then you've got these other things that are kind of useless. They're not very honorable. I don't know what it was like for you growing up. We moved around a lot. I didn't have the greatest childhood. Um, and, and while we moved around a lot, there's a lot of pain in that because it wasn't always for the best reasons. But there's this consistent thing in every place we ever lived. And it was my grandmother's china cabinet. Didn't matter how small the apartment we moved into, how messed up the home was, how dirty everything got, you left the china cabinet alone. It was this prized piece, the only prized piece that I can remember from my entire childhood in the home that we lived in. Many of you have that. Anyone my age or younger is like, what's a china cabinet? But it's like this thing you set aside and it's special china brought out for special meals. Okay, Paul says in a home, you've got that. You also have things like a toilet brush and a plunger. They're not like they're there, but they're not the greatest things, right? He says when you go into a church, you've got this too. You've got these people that are like genuinely connected to the heart of the Father. They're genuinely transformed lives. And then you've got other people that are faking it. They're trying to fit in trying to behave like a Christian so that they can be accepted like one, but they're not really connecting to the heart of the Father. He said, you've got both sets of people. And he, I'm here to tell you, like, shame on us if we've created an environment that makes the people that feel like they have to fake it hide their insecurities, their difficulties, their doubts. Because this should be the safest place to wrestle. Because you're working and you're living around people that have also wrestled with God. But Brene Brown says it this way. I love it. In a book she wrote recently, she said this, Belonging is being accepted for, those, for who you really are. Fitting in is trying to be accepted for who you're not. See, when you belong, it doesn't mean you're accepted for who you are. It doesn't mean that everything's approved of. There's a big difference in our world. But you're, you're accepted for who you are, where you're at. Fitting in is feeling like you have to fake it in order for people to accept you and care about you. Perhaps this is best illustrated in the Old Testament. If you go to your Old Testament, there's a story of Jacob and Esau. They're these two brothers, their dad, Isaac. Now, when their mom is pregnant with them, they're twins. And in that day and age, being a twin was not a great thing. No offense if you're a twin. But being a twin was not this, uh, because it made everything difficult. Because your firstborn was usually the heir of the family, the leader of the family. So it kind of complicated things. And so what they said was, whoever comes out first is going to get all the rights and privileges of the firstborn. And so you can imagine some sort of a wrestling match going on inside the womb. 
And Esau comes out first. He wins. And the Bible describes him as hairy and red. So that's great. That's how he's remembered. He comes out hairy and he's red. And right attached to his heel is who? It's Jacob. Jacob's like, you're not getting out without me. I'm coming with you. And so he comes out too. But from the moment he's born, he recognizes that his identity is formed around this concept that he's not Esau. See, no one instilled in him that his identity is you are Jacob. Everybody instilled in him that his identity was you're not Esau. So every time he walked into a room, he watched his dad's eyes light up with pride every time Esau was there. But every time he walked into the room, he watched his dad's face droop with disappointment. And everything around him told him that you, you, you might be who you are, but really you're not this person. And maybe you've accepted that about yourself. Maybe you've said that who I am is really about who I'm not. I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not this. And you're not hearing the heart of the Father speaking to you, much like Jacob with Isaac. But Jacob had an ally. He had his mother. And his mother uh, gets with him and they create a plan. And say, hey, you can trick your dad into getting the, the birthright blessing. All you got to do is you got to put animal skin on you so you feel hairy. Again, I feel bad for Esau. <laughs> so you put animal skin on yourself and you disguise your voice because your dad can't see well and he can't hear that well. So you can trick him. And he says, no, mom, I don't want to do it. And his mom says, I, I want you to do this. I'll take the curse for this. So that's what he does. He puts this animal skin on himself and he goes to his dad. And when he walks in, the Bible says, his dad says, who is this? Isaac said, who is it? And he says, it's your firstborn, the one you're really proud of, the one you love. It's your firstborn Esau. Imagine how much that. In that moment, here's what Jacob learns. Jacob learns, if you can't get what you want for being who you are, maybe you can get what you want for pretending to be who you're not. I think a lot of Christians live that way. So he goes to his dad and he tricks his dad. And he receives the blessing. And his brother finds out and there's all kinds of rage and anger and they separate and go separate ways because look, when you can't be honest, it only separates and divides. It cannot create intimacy. And so they separate and they go their separate ways. And then you keep reading the story of Jacob and the pinnacle moment in the life of Jacob is this wrestling match that he has with God. See, God and Jacob enter into this giant wrestling match and Jacob wants more than anything else the blessing from God. He says, I've, I've had enough I want your blessing. Everything's not going my way. All I've done is fake it. I've worn a mask. I've pretended to be who I'm not. All I want is your blessing. And he fiercely desires this blessing. And God's not giving in. And they wrestle. And we learn that through that wrestling match, he gets an injury. Injures his hip. And now he walks with a limp. He has this severe limp. And as far as we know in the life of Jacob, that limp never went away. He entered into the wrestling match seeking a blessing. And he walked out with a limp. You think, what kind of deal is that? I think maybe the limp became the blessing. Because it connected him to the heart of the Father. See, later on you see Jacob and Esau reunited. And you watch Esau come running toward his brother in a scene where he should have taken out a sword and shoved it through his brother's gut in that day and age. But instead he embraces him and hugs him. And i got to wonder why. And I think, I really do believe that he saw his brother walking with a limp and it softened his heart. Because he realized Jacob finally knows who he is. And on that wrestling match, on that day, he got a new identity. And his heart was transformed and his story changed. And this is what Paul's telling us. Look, you might wrestle with God. You might be in a season of difficulty. But I want you to know this. God can work with a limp. God can work with your limp. He can work with your difficulty. He can work with your shortcomings if you're honest about them. If you own them and you say, God, here's who I am. Here's where I'm at. God wants to meet you in that place and transform your heart. 
But sadly, you've been given the message over and over again, if you'll just change your behavior, your circumstances will change. Only to run up against a wall of defeat. See, it's not about fitting in. It's about being belonging and being accepted. So now, Timothy is reading this, and Paul shifts his focus and says, hey, now, dealing with those false teachers, when you understand who you are in Christ, your approach to everything changes. And he finishes up this chapter, and he says this in verse 22, so because you know who you are, because you might walk with a limp, but at least you know about the limp, at least God's working in your life, he's working with you, he says, so flee from these youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, among the, along with those who call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Again, the third time he's told him to watch his tongue. Watch what you talk about. Watch who you talk about it with. Watch how long you talk about something. Don't gossip. Don't participate in information that you don't need to know about. Watch your tongue over and over and over again. You know that they breed quarrels when we just keep talking. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them, the opponents, repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So he says, look, first thing he says is this, your enemy is not the false teachers. You've got a much more powerful enemy you're up against, and all he wants you to do is get mad at other people. All that enemy wants you to do is take out your rage and your anger on another person because he knows it creates quarrels and difficulty and you'll never find peace. He says, but God's servant, God's servant has to love people with kindness and patience. You have to look at even your opponents and try to see them the way God sees them. Man, is that difficult. He gives them instruction on how to kind of live this life out. He says, hey, you need to flee. Remember our interpretation principle. If it's repeated, it's... Again, three of you, come on. If it's repeated, it's This is the second time in these two letters that he, Paul has told Timothy to flee from something. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, he says you need to flee from, run from the temptation to pursue money with your life because it will trap you. Now he says run from your youthful passions. Picture this. In Ephesus, it was the most immoral, sexually explicit culture that you can ever imagine in the history of our world. It was disgusting when you read some of the stories in history about what took place in Ephesus. And now you've got this young single preacher walking around the streets seeing all of this. And he says, you need to avoid that. You need to run from it. You need to flee. Flee from these things with your life. Intentionally get away from it. Make the decision. But he says, in the Christian life, journeying with Jesus, you can't simply run away from something. You have to run towards Jesus. And what we do oftentimes is we remove something that's a struggle and we think that we can just do better. I'm going to run from this temptation that I have for anger and I'm simply going to be nice. Or I'm going to run from this temptation for pornography and I'm going to put these things in my life to protect me only to find out that that battle's impossible to win on your own. It's impossible to win on your own. Paul does not say flee from something and do better. He says flee from something and pursue righteousness. But if you know your Bible, you know you can't be righteous on your own. So when he says flee from this sin, this difficulty, but pursue God, connect to the heart of the Father. If you'll connect to the heart of the Father, everything will change. And when everything changes, you begin to view people differently. Even your enemies, all you can think is, I, I need to serve you because the ultimate goal is to get you closer to the heart of God. I've said this to you numerous times. My most important job when it comes to my wife, Sarah, the most important thing that I will do for her in, in our entire marriage, when we get to the end of our life, the most important thing 
is that she'd be closer to Jesus because I was her husband. Every one of my kids, I love them to death. And if you've heard me preach for long, you know I love my kids. I love them. But the best thing I can do for my children is at the end of their life, they look back and they say, I love Jesus more because that was my dad. The best thing your enemies can say about you is that the best thing that happened to me was entering into that difficult season with that person because they modeled Jesus. They served me. And as a result of that, I repented. And I'm back close to the Lord. You see, the goal is not to be right. The goal is not to win. Remember, we said this a couple weeks ago. Paul was not in a crusade against the culture. He was on a mission to save the culture. It's a big difference. God's called you to love people. I, heard a, I watched a graduation speech that went viral this past week. It was an incredible speech. Maybe I'm late to the game, but I saw it this week. It was very moving. And this man talked about his third grade dropout dad and, and the impact he had on his life. Many of you may have seen it. But he had this line in his speech that I've been chewing on all week. And I think it describes the Christian life, the approach to conflict and difficulty and people and every part of our life. And he said this. He said, when it comes to life, you want to be successful. Make sure that your servant towel is always bigger than your ego. Make sure that when it comes to difficulty, you're just ready to pick up the towel. Remember what Jesus did on the last night of his life to the guys that would abandon him in just a few short hours, to the one who would betray him leading to his death? He got down on his knees and he washed their feet. He didn't blast them. He didn't display hatred or anger. He didn't say, well, that's just my personality. That's the way I need to, I'm just going to be on. No, he loved them. He met them where they were at. And he didn't force them to meet him where he was at. And it transformed everything. So here's the challenge to you this next week. Will you allow God to transform your heart, not just change your behavior? No matter where you're at or what you're going through, I want to encourage you, God can work with a limp that person's heart is softened and ready. But that choice is yours. Let's pray.